Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this, of course, is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And, uh, let's see, any, uh, housekeeping, house cleaning to take care of? Oh yeah, so I apologize that I've been on social media even less than usual. So I think I have some, uh, some tweets to catch up on and uh, also some Facebook uh, shout outs to catch up on. Uh, none of which I plan on uh, taking care of right now. I just, I- I'm aware I've received a lot of notifications. And let's see, oh yeah, further confessions of a bad host. I'm also aware that I made a liar out of myself once again. I think I said in last week's episode that I was going to get out a YouTube version, even if it meant it was going to be audio only with just, you know, a still image. Uh, but I-, I failed to do that, so I apologize. I hate when I end up making a, a liar out of myself. And um, one promise I do plan on keeping is holding true to this new format. So this being the second week of the month, this is going to be yet another news story episode. The next week will be a kind of, you know, mini documentary episode. And then the last week of the month will just be a complete free form. Uh, This is an unscripted episode too, if you can't tell, but the last episode of the month is going to be meant specifically to be um, unscripted and and kind of long form, free form. That's meant to be uh, hopefully the charm of the thing. But now that I'm done flagellating myself, and actually I always feel self-conscious when I use the word flagellate because it sounds too close to flatulence, but also sounds kind of uh, like a euphemism for masturbation. And this is what happens when you do an unscripted show. Uh, a little over two minutes in and I've, I'm already knee-deep in trouble. Anyway... Let's see if I can recover. And and technically, flagellate doesn't really sound like a euphemism. It sounds like really clinical in a way. But yeah, basically like to kind of whip or punish yourself. What's what's our friend the dictionary have to say? (laughs) Flagellate, flog, someone in parentheses, either as a religious discipline or for sexual gratification. He flagellated himself with branches. Okay. cracking myself up here. (laughs) But uh, yeah, that makes me think of the Da Vinci Code. Wasn't there this kind of uh, overzealous albino monk, I think? What was it? He was from Opus Dei in the story, which is actually an actual Catholic organization. The Da Vinci Code, you know, monetarily, popularity-wise, a gigantic success. Uh, But I always resented it. It always kind kind of pissed me off because it was like a steaming pile of inaccuracies. Uh, But the movie wasn't too bad. You know, everyone likes Tom Hanks, right? But anyway, let's move on to the religious news stories. So this first one, like most of my religious news stories, comes from Hemant Mehta's The Friendly Atheist channel on Patheos. And this is one of those stories where I'm kind of second-guessing whether or not I should have even included it. Because, you know, it has kind of a juicy title, but then once you dig in, you know, it's not really quite as compelling. But it's dated to August 15th, and it's entitled, Main Cops Rescind Punishment for Man Erasing Christian Hate Speech. So if you're like me, you hear that title and you're like, holy crap, someone was punished for fighting back against, you know, religious bigotry? That's not right, you know what I mean? 
And uh, there is definitely truth to it. And um, it's not necessarily misleading. It, it's, it's fairly accurate. Um, but this is one of those stories where even though I agree ideologically with the left-leaning person in the story, at the same time, and maybe they were, you know, I find them a little douchey at the same time. And there's a couple of stories like that. And I don't want to be too hard on this guy because I think, you know, uh, morally, ethically, he was on the side of, uh, quote unquote, the angels, so to speak, figuratively. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, so there's like a nine minute video of this encounter. So what happened is... There's this uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, ministry or whatever in Maine, and they had uh, written on the street all this kind of anti-gay graffiti, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, I find that repugnant, and I think that it's very cool that someone decided to try to erase all that crap and to, you know, push back. But when you watch the video, the guy's being a little difficult with the cops. Um, you know, it feels a little LARPy to me, you know what I mean? Uh, I don't know, yeah. But it, so I'm on the guy's side, but when you watch the, the video, I feel like the guy maybe was being a little needlessly difficult. But I'll read uh, from the article. Last week, Scott Hall, an activist in Maine, was erasing hate speech put up in a local town square by an anti-LGBTQ Christian ministry. Sure, that ministry had a First Amendment right to chalk the ground with messages saying things like, quote-unquote, repent, but Hall also had the right to take them down. And yet, as both groups were doing their thing, it was only Hall who was stopped by local police and given a no-trespassing order, banning him from stepping foot in that location for a full year. So, uh, I do think, in fairness, that one-year ban was completely outrageous. You know, banning someone from uh, entering a certain public area for a whole year, that's... Yeah, that's uh, a bit extreme, I would say. Um, so my take from watching this video is that the cops show up on the scene and they see this activist, um, you know, kind of trying to erase this graffiti or uh, write whatever he was doing, right? And so I would say probably unfairly, you know, it would be good if they held the people who wrote this anti-gay stuff, this graffiti on the, the ground or pavement, accountable. You know, I mean, so it's, it's obviously it's not fair in hindsight that they're targeting the guy who I think morally is in the right here. But they're just trying to kind of get him to move along. You know what I mean? And... uh they're just trying, it seems like they're trying to clear everyone out. And I don't want to paint the police in too good a light here because I, I feel like the cops maybe like they're these kind of young officers and they might deserve, you know, a douche medal themselves. But, <laughs> but anyway, so um, he's being kind of difficult in the sense where instead of just complying with what they're asking, he's literally just staying there and still like pouring water and scrubbing, you know, um, where in a way, you know, you could say good on him, 
you know, he's uh, he's sticking to his convictions and doing what he thinks is right, even in the face of possibly having to face uh, legal consequences, you know. But there was something about the way the guy carried himself that just gave me a little bit, little bit of a douche vibe, you know what I mean? And actually, in fairness, so you can kind of judge for yourselves, and I didn't uh, pull this clip because it was nine minutes long. I didn't plan on playing it on the show. I do have other clips I'm going to be playing on the show. But maybe I can just kind of quickly play a bit of it for you, you know, through my iPad, so the quality is not going to be great. But here we go. I you to stop. Okay. All right, now, what, you, to stop. you want me to put down my water? Yes. And... My broom. Just put it back. You're saying that it's it's a problem? Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't really understand what you're saying. I'm just going to mop this hate speech up. What's your name again? You wrote my name down. You know exactly what my name is. I deal with people all the time. Okay. This is why you're getting a CT button. Okay? This whole, this whole reason. Okay, so there it was, and basically, you know, you can get the gist of the video from those first few seconds. And I will say in fairness to the guy, you know, watching it back there, um, in a way, you know, he was actually providing a public service. And I think graffiti might be too strong a word because when I was looking back there, it's basically just like brickwork, pavement, and some kind of public area. It almost looked like messages written in brightly or you know different colored chalk the way that you know kids might do uh you know when they like make little hopscotch uh lines or whatever on the pavement um and so he was basically just using water and a mop to kind of clean the pavement so in a way you could say he was kind of doing a public service but then i guess you know if the cops are trying to keep the peace, it could be a thing where, like, people are saying, oh, we have a right to, you know, write on the pavement here with chalk, and this guy's coming along, and, you know, and even though it was um, this kind of bigoted, anti-gay, religious propaganda, could see how, like, it could cause a kind of a kind of friction if you have people trying to write with chalk and other people coming up washing it away and how that could lead to conflicts and this and that or whatever. So maybe the police are just trying to keep the peace. Um, but yeah, in a sense, he's basically cleaning. He's not you know, vandalizing the pavement. He's doing the opposite. He's actually cleaning. Um, but yeah, he probably could have the best of both worlds. You know, he could have complied with the cop's request or demands and just stopped what he was doing. And at the same time, you know, and that would have kept him out of legal trouble and this and that. And it would have kept things from escalating. At the same time, he could have taken the, you know, the I think we're looking at maybe he's wearing some kind of GoPro or body cam or he's using his phone camera. Um, but. Um, he could have just recorded all the ugly stuff they had written on the pavement. You know what I mean? And, and spread that out to the world, gone online and said, look at what this, um, this religious organization up in Maine is doing. Look at this ugly, anti-gay, bigoted stuff they're writing in public, you know? 
Um, and at the same time, he could have tried to remove it, but once the cops come along, you know, he could have just, like, complied and left. But I guess it boils down to, you know, personal choice. Everyone's different. If taking things to that level seemed morally the right thing to do, and he felt like he was showing, the, you know, the courage of his convictions, then, you know, it's his life. That's all right. If it was me, and maybe this means maybe I'm a bit more cowardly in that sense, or, you know, more uh, malleable or easily swayed by uh, the authorities, you know, but if it was me, you know, I'm a pretty laid back guy, and I was just walking through town, and I suddenly came upon all these kind of anti-gay or bigoted scribblings or scrawlings on public land, you know, I probably would have been like, look at this shit, man. You know, I would have got out my iPhone, I would have recorded it all, and I would have went home and put it on YouTube. Since I, I have a podcast, I would have, you know, made it part of the podcast. I would have made it part of the podcast. And if I knew this specific group was responsible for it, I would make sure I included that in the story or the video and let everyone know, hey man, this is what this group is getting up to, you know, kind of a uh, name and shame them. But I do think it's a good thing that they rescinded the man's punishment, and I think they felt enough public pressure that they realized they had to come forward and release a statement. And it's a rather lengthy statement at that, so I'll just read a little bit of it. And it's from uh, the city of Bangor, Maine, and automatically I think of Stephen King. But anyway, uh, on the evening of Friday, August 7th, 2020, Bangor police responded to multiple calls about two men involved in an argument in downtown Bangor and acted upon the information that they were provided. The primary goal of those officers was to ensure that the situation was de-escalated and that everyone remained unharmed. The incident resulted in the issuing of a non-trespass order for one of the parties involved, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, yeah, once again, um, I think it is, uh, it's good that they rescinded that, uh, that man's punishment. And I'm just curious to see if they, um, make it clear that they don't, you know, condone anti, you know, LGBTQ bigotry or whatever. Let's see. In the days since the incident, there has been much discussion about shock in public spaces, freedom of speech and the safety and inclusion of the LGBTQ community, including a discussion between the Downtown Banger Partnership, DBP, and the Banger Police Department at a regularly scheduled DBP board of directors, of directors meeting. And so I'll just skip down a bit. Okay, here we go. The Bangor City Council and city staff have been and will always be supportive of all Bangor citizens, including members of the LGBTQ community. No one in our community should have to live in fear of reprisals from others who do not accept them for who they are. The death of Charlie Howard in 1984 is a painful reminder of the senseless tragedies that are often the result of hate and discrimination. We are saddened that anyone in the Bangor community would feel uncomfortable in Bangor, regardless of race, gender, gender identification, or sexual orientation. And this next sentence seems like it's worded a bit strangely. Let's see. We strongly believe as a city that is the presence of all people representing diverse backgrounds that make us special and unique. Okay, so, I mean, 
I feel a kind of a sense of relief, even though, you know, I don't live in Bangor, but uh, just knowing that um, they were at least willing to release this public statement, which condemns bigotry, uh, specifically bigotry against the LGBT community. Uh, that makes me personally feel a little better. You know, I, I think uh, that's good to see. And so that public statement mentions Charlie Howard and the name sounds familiar, but I couldn't really, you know, place it. So I thought I'd look it up. So I found uh, a result here uh, on Google. Killing of Charlie Howard. Charles O. Howard was an American murder victim in Bangor, Maine in 1984. As Howard and his boyfriend, Roy Ogden, were walking down the street, three teenagers, Sean L. Mabry, age 16, James Francis Baines, age 15, and Daniel Ness, age 17, harassed, assaulted, and murdered Howard for being gay. Uh, so that is uh, an extremely disturbing story. And I don't know if maybe it sounds a little familiar because maybe I heard something in passing growing up. I don't know. But uh, yeah, there's an awful story. Okay, so I'll move on to the next religious news story. And this is one of those ones that, you know, it was almost a coin toss. Does it go into the uh, politics section or what? Um, and like I said before, I realized one of the possible pitfalls of this format is that often politics and religion uh, overlap, so it might be difficult trying to sort them into different bins, you know. But like I said, if it has anything to do with religion, then we'll go into the religious section. And this story has to do with Roger Stone, definitely not one of my favorite people. And so if any of you out there, you know, keep up with politics to any degree, you'll probably know who Roger Stone is. So, uh, wow, he has a long history in politics. So as a young man, uh, Stone worked for Richard Nixon, and he's long been, and this is uh, one of those TMI things, I wish I didn't have to have this image in my head, but it's well known that Roger Stone has a uh, tattoo of Richard Nixon on his lower back. So basically a tramp stamp. Uh, very, very strange, very disturbing. Um, but he's long been known as what's called a political hatchet man. Kind of a figure you call on to do your kind of political dirty work. Uh, to smear your enemies, uh, that kind of thing. But the strange thing is, Roger Stone is really this kind of ludicrous, absurd figure. You would think that someone who is a kind of uh, hatchet man who got things done behind the scenes might be more of a, you know, someone who kind of uh, exudes more confidence and competence or something. But he's really this almost like weird comic book kind of character. And of course, uh, you know, he's a longtime associate of Donald Trump. And uh, this was really strange because, I mean, we all should have known from the get-go that something wasn't right here, you know? Like I always said, I always thought that Donald Trump is just kind of a colorful, interesting figure, you know, when I was growing up. Uh, you know, he had his book, The Art of the Deal, um, his name was on board games and all sorts of things. He always knew how to market himself. And of course, 
people always connected him to his casinos and things like that. And he'd have like the rare SNL appearance. So just a kind of colorful guy, but I never really thought of him as a figure that should be taken too seriously or, you know, a potential danger or anything. You know, and first when he was talking about running for president, I thought it was probably just a gimmick, a way to try to capitalize off of the attention or whatever, you know. And I still think, to some degree, that might be the case. Uh, there's still this uh, this thought out there that maybe he never planned on winning. And when he actually won, it was kind of like, oh, shit. But I think he's such an egomaniacal character now that he does have power. Even though I bet you, you can kind of tell that they say um, the presidency is a really tough job that takes a lot out of you and just kind of, you know, grinds you into the dirt. You know what I mean? And um, there's that old saying or, you know, belief that presidents always leave office looking significantly older. And I thought maybe there's some merit to that. Some of it might just be because there are people who are kind of already getting up there anyway. And obviously you're going to see more signs of aging after four or eight years, you know what I mean? But definitely a very taxing job and not just in the sense of all that the job entails, all the duties and responsibilities, but there's also probably the additional immense psychological stress or pressure of knowing you're constantly being watched by the entire world and being viewed as the leader of the most power was supposed to be the most powerful nation in the free world. You know what I mean? And so I get the feeling that this job is really wearing him down, that it's just beating the shit out of him. You know what I mean? But at the same time, he's so egomaniacal that he doesn't want to let go of power, even though the job might be destroying him in a sense. You know what I mean? Um, very strange. But like I've said before on the show, when I really started to realize just what kind of person Donald Trump was, was when, uh, you know, he started pounding the drum for the birther movement when he said just kind of outlandish and insensitive, just unthinkable things like, like saying to John McCain, a prisoner of war, a veteran, that he preferred people who weren't captured, uh, that kind of stuff. And I began to realize how dangerous he was when I saw the way he was, um, you know, how far he's willing to go to pander to his far right base. Uh, definitely scary stuff. And don't worry, I'm coming back around to Roger Stone right now. And so I knew this was just all really weird, man. This was like a sideshow. This was so bizarre. So most of you who listen to this show will know who Alex Jones is and what a what an absurd, albeit entertaining figure he, you know, he is. And so the idea that a serious presidential candidate would be appearing on Infowars, you know, that kind of thing. And then Roger Stone, like I said, who uh, a long time kind of confidant and advisor to uh, Donald Trump, who has the shady past as a political hatchet man going all the way back to the corrupt Nixon administration. Al, um, 
Roger Stone started palling around, got really close with Alex Jones, was appearing on InfoWars regularly, stormed the set of the Young Turks along with Alex Jones, was trying to start a physical fight with uh, the Young Turks. Jank probably would have kicked his ass, but Roger Stone was talking shit. If uh, That is just a really wild moment uh, in internet or politics history. <laughs> Look that up on YouTube if you've never watched it. I think it culminates with Jimmy Dore spitting in uh, Alex Jones's face. But just the fact that someone, you know, a presidential candidate would be tied to Alex Jones and Roger Stone is really bizarre. But I'll read a bit from this story, and this is also from uh, The Friendly Atheist. It's entitled, Convicted felon Roger Stone will preach at the Church of Hate Pastor Greg Locke, and it's dated uh, August 10th. Roger Stone is the political consultant and advisor to Donald Trump, who is convicted of obstruction, witness tampering, and lying to Congress before Trump commuted his sentence in July. Back in March, in his first interview since being sentenced, he said he felt good since he had quote-unquote taken Jesus Christ as my personal savior. He also said in July that the people who prosecuted him were quote-unquote satanic atheists. So I was going to stop from it to say that's ri ridiculous to say satanic atheists since atheists don't believe in the devil or supernatural powers. But as we all know, there actually are satanic atheists because most of the popular uh, types of Satanists out there or groups or organizations are technically non-theistic Satanist groups like the Satanic Temple and LaVey's Church of Satan. So technically you can be a satanic atheist. So naturally, he'll be spending the morning of August 30th preaching at the church of hate pastor Greg Locke. Locke made the announcement during an outdoor social distancing be damned mask-free service yesterday. And so this is what Bible thumping and science denialism gets you. Uh, people proudly putting themselves and others at risk during a global pandemic. Germ theory of disease? It's just a theory. Fucking people suck. Pardon my French. Ah, oh, I'm sorry. I actually said I'm not going to swear during this episode. There goes that. And this just made me think of... Uh, this probably would belong in the pop culture segment at the end of the show. But, but I can't resist. During the lockdown... I don't know if I spoke about this on the show yet. But uh, I'm a fan of Tool, and you guys might know, uh, you know, Maynard Keenan from Tool. He's also in, a, in another band called Pussifer, um, like Lucifer, but Pussifer. And uh, during the lockdown, they released a video called, I think it's just called Apocalyptic. Let me see. I have to go to YouTube. Oh, it's actually called Apocalyptical. And it's just a great song if you want to de-stress after dealing with people like this, you know, who are just science deniers, who seem to want to completely put their, their heads in the sand and not even acknowledge that uh, a global pandemic actually exists. Or people who arrogantly, you know, these LARPers, once again, who want to pretend they're the ones in the know and we're all the sheep for wearing the masks, you know. But the, oh, the song and the video are, are so good. And it shows just like these barren, empty streets. And it shows like um, coronavirus uh, 
molecules or whatever floating around. And I love the lyrics. They actually include the lyrics in the uh, video description. Concrete conclusions be damned. They won't believe you until it's far too late. Go on, moron, ignore the evidence. Skid into Armageddon, tango apocalyptical. Jog on, head down, ignore the evidence. Tripping over Armageddon, moonwalking apocalyptical. <laughs> dumb, dumb, be damned. I love... <laughs> Oh my god, and I used to love, like, back in my old angst, have my old angsty days ever completely left me, you know, but when I was young, I used to love um, that Tool song, Anima, it was almost like a prayer or a wish for L.A. to fall into the ocean, and that that sarcastic cor uh, chorus, learn to swim, learn to swim, um, uh, yep, yep. Yeah, it's funny, like, I try not to be misanthropic, I try to be empathetic and caring and patient, but with this whole, uh, with the pandemic, just, it's like a parade of mankind's worst traits on parade, just the science denialism, the selfishness, the ignorance, irrationality, the brutishness. Uh, we've probably all seen like those viral videos of both men and women. I think they call the women Karens now. That's that's what the kids are saying. And the men are, I guess you could call the men Kens or male Karens. Uh, these people throwing fits in grocery stores over not wanting to wear a mask. Or I saw one recently where there's a guy in a grocery store, and it's funny, It's I, I watch Cult of Dusty here and there, and he makes the point how these guys that are usually trying to start something physical or threaten other people, um, you know, over being told or asked to wear a mask or whatever, it's usually like the squat, overweight, doughy, middle-aged guys, you know, <laughs> who still think they're king shit or whatever. Since I'm already swearing, why not continue? And uh, yeah, so I saw one recently. So it was a guy in the grocery store with his son and a group of other guys. And compared to the one guy who's just, you know, freaking out and making an ass out of himself, the guy, the guys he's who he's with seem relatively calm and normal. But then I'm thinking like, even the people accompanying him, at least they're not flipping out like he is, but none of them are wearing masks either, you know? But the guy's starting crap with people in the supermarket who are wearing masks, calling them all sorts of names, telling them that they, they look stupid, uh, looks like they're wearing uh, their mother's doily on their face and, you know, threatening them physically. And it ends up, the guy's son has to drag him out of the supermarket, you know, probably before he gets his ass kicked. And But even the son who's acting, you know, relatively sane isn't wearing a mask either. And I don't understand this weird thing where men seem to think that it's emasculating to wear a mask. Because in a weird way, I kind of think like it's the opposite. So you guys know the drill. I have a graphic design degree, but for some neurotic reason, keep myself stuck in the family construction business. So I've been doing manual labor construction for like 20 years. And up until probably about a year ago, I didn't like wearing a mask. I would sometimes wear a mask just to keep like my father or my brother happy. 
or if things were really, really bad. Like, even when doing things like insulating a room where, you know, you're getting all the little fiberglass hooks in your skin and you're breathing that stuff in and you're sweating and it's getting in your face, you know. For some reason, when I was younger, I had way more of a tolerance for that stuff. I thought I was kind of tough. Like, I would just bare hands, no mask. I'd be cutting insulation, putting it in, you know, uh, the the stud bays and the wall or whatever. And... Uh, not think of anything. And I'd watch like the other guys uh, who knew more than me. Sometimes they'd even put like talcum or baby powder on their skin, then put gloves on, then put a mask on because the, the powder helps to keep the, um, the little microscopic hook like fibers of insulation from getting into your pores and into your skin, you know? And, uh, it's just recent, like within the past couple of years, because I'm someone who also has a history of asthma, and I'm like, I shouldn't be playing around. And I noticed myself becoming more sensitive to the to insulation, to breathing in concrete dust, plaster dust, stuff like that. So over the past couple of years, I've actually started wearing gloves and a mask more regularly, you know? And then this happened, and it just seemed like common sense. And I was already used to wearing a mask, and so I was actually surprised by how quickly I acclimated to wearing a mask for long periods of time. Because not only if you're going out and about, but also um, the regulations are, at least here in Massachusetts, that when you're doing construction, you have to be wearing a mask now. Uh, they also want you wearing gloves. There needs to be a station where... Um, there's like sanitizer and gloves and masks always available. And only so many people can be occupying a space at the same time. They may have loosened up on those regulations because there's been a, you know, a multi-phase reopening. But still, my, you know, my brother pretty much took over the business after my father retired. So I work for my brother and we're still wearing masks every day. But I almost find like wearing a mask, maybe because I associate it with my day job as being almost kind of masculine or tough. It almost makes me think of like Immortan Joe from like uh, <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road or some kind of like wasteland, uh, borderlands type of thing. I, don't, I never found like wearing a mask to not be masculine or to be effeminate. It's like, why would using common sense... And putting something on my face so I don't have to breathe in your goddamn germs or risk giving my germs to anyone else. You know, why is, why is being considerate and being smart, you know, not masculine? I don't get it. And I was just going over my notes trying to see if there was any other religious news stories I set aside for this episode. And there's another one here. Also from the Friendly Atheist. I almost feel like maybe I should just proclaim this podcast an annex of the Friendly Atheist. Just uh, sarcastically being self-deprecating, but uh, I'd probably get more views and uh, downloads or whatever. Anyway, um, uh, laughing at my, uh, my own situation. <laughs> anyway, it's entitled, uh, White Evangelicals Love Trump Because He Feeds Their Persecution Complex. Should we be surprised that white evangelicals overwhelmingly support Donald Trump? About 81% voted for him in 2016, and about 82% say they plan to do the same this November. If you believe they were telling the truth about their supposed values, then their support for him has to be the epitome of hypocrisy. 
Trump clearly sees the Bible as a strategic tool and nothing else. His corruption is breathtaking. He has caused more death through his incompetence and neglect than anyone thought imaginable. His racism is overt. Cruelty seems to be his only guiding light. There's nothing Jesus-like about him. But if you understand that white evangelicals have never cared about those values, and that using religion to acquire political power has always been their endgame, and they've been doing this over and over for decades, changing their values to suit the times, like fighting for segregation to fighting against abortion rights when the former became untenable. Then their support for a modern American dictator makes perfect sense. They support Trump because he really does represent everything they want. Power with no regard for the consequences. In a front-page story in today's New York Times, Elizabeth Dias, I think it is, or Dias, D-I-A-S, dives into whether evangelical support for Trump is hypocritical, transactional, or something else entirely. She comes to this conclusion. Evangelicals did not support Mr. Trump in spite of who he is. They supported him because of who he is and because of who they are. He is their protector, the bully who is on their side, the one who offered safety amid their fears that their country as they know it and their place in it is changing and changing quickly. White, straight, married couples with children who go to church regularly are no longer the American mainstream. An entire way of life, one in which their values were dominant, could be headed for extinction, and Mr. Trump offered to restore them to power, as though they have not been in power all along. And then uh, Hemet Mehta continues, I would phrase that differently. White evangelicals have always lied to themselves about being persecuted. Trump gives them a chance to be the persecutors. They don't want religious freedom. They want religious supremacy. Trump gives it to them, and if a bunch of people have to die or suffer because of Trump's malice, those evangelicals don't give a damn. That's what Christianity has come to represent in the age of Trump. The people who constantly claim to be morally superior would rather have the trophy than earn the title. And so I think there might be some, you know, hyperbole in there, but I think largely it makes a very important point about... Uh, the hypocrisy of evangelicals and Christians in general who support Donald Trump, who is an utterly, you know, reprehensible figure and who basically uses the Bible as a photo op, you know what I mean? And I think there were a couple of really powerful points that article made. One was the idea that it's as if white evangelicals or white Christians want Trump to restore them to power when you know, they've basically been in power all along. And then there was the part about, you know, these people who claim to be morally superior seem that they would rather just have the trophy than earn the title. They want the power, but, you know, where's the, uh, why aren't we seeing people walk the walk? Where's Christianity in action? See, a lot of churches that uh, are kind of, kind of, thumbing their nose at uh, COVID-19 that want the right to put others and themselves in jeopardy by having um, services where people don't have to wear masks or social practice social distancing. And I think part of it 
is this superstitious idea that God's going to be our armor. We don't have to worry because um, what was that one woman early on during the outbreak? Uh, there was that viral video of the woman who was just coming out, you know, parading around, no mask, saying she didn't have to protect herself because she's covered in the blood of the lamb. Well, is everyone else breathing your air also covered in the blood of the lamb? Are you even concerned about that? And I think often this is married with this kind of conservative, far-right narrative that, you know, the... Um, that the virus is a bunch of BS and it's just the government, you know, doing a power grab or the the elites or whatever. It's funny how like a lot of people on the far right are distrustful of government and yet they've formed a giant cult of personality around the current leader of the government, Donald Trump. What the fuck? You know what I'm saying? And then I was thinking about... uh that hate pastor, you know, at whose church uh, Roger Stone is supposed to preach on the 30th or whatever. I'm just imagining like if this dude actually, let's say Jesus was a historical figure. I'm a, I'm agnostic on the historicity of Jesus. Maybe he was a real historical figure. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was somewhere kind of amalgam of different uh, characters, you know. But a, a uh, first century you know, Palestine Jew, uh, this kind of short, swarthy guy, probably, you know, with uh, dark, curly hair or whatever. Uh, I wonder what Greg Locke would, would think of him. Kill it, it's brown, you know what I mean? Uh, I, do all these people still think that Jesus looked like Ted Nugent or whatever? I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, okay, so there was one more little story I wanted to cover in this so-called religious news story segment or section of the show. It's just a fun little last-minute addition. So last night I happened to be watching The Drunken Peasants, as I am wont to do, and their guests were Steve McRae, formerly of the Non-Sequitur Show, and his kind of co-host, Cheshire Vic. And so if you're a longtime listener of this show or if you just kind of move in the same online circles as myself, you're probably familiar with the non-sequitur show drama. And drama might be kind of an unfair way for me to word it. Maybe it seems like I'm overly trivializing it or something. Um, because it, it was fairly serious, but the non-sequitur shows you probably know was this up-and-coming, very fast-growing podcast, and I can remember when they had fewer subscribers than me on YouTube, and they quickly outpaced me, and I think it was deserved, because in the beginning, they had a really strong formula or format, great content, you know, it was kind of geared towards atheists and kind of scientifically minded people. Maybe that's not the most apt way to put it, but um, I'm reaching, you know, I'm just trying to find the right terminology. Steve McRae himself doesn't consider himself an atheist, but I'd say he's kind of atheist adjacent. I think Kyle was an atheist. But then there were money problems, to put it, maybe euphemistically. Um, and I had very quick but positive interactions with both Kyle and Steve in the past. So I don't want to see, you know, I always feel weird when it seems like I'm being critical or talking shit about either of them. But it seems to be the case that Kyle was the one in the wrong, uh, that uh, he basically 
was holding funds back from Steve and basically Steve never got paid at all for the show. But I think altogether, you know, when you combine things like Patreon, uh, YouTube, Donos, stuff like that, uh, I think the show was in maybe merchandise sales. I think the show was worth or made something about $60,000, half of which arguably should have gone to Steve. Uh, Steve co-founded the show. Um, He was booking, uh, you know, many of the popular uh, guess a lot of the intellectual heavyweights in the beginning, etc. I guess, um, you know, according to Steve, basically Kyle was trying to edge him out of the picture and take over control and kind of take control of the funds as well. Um, and so things got very ugly. There were legal proceedings. I guess Steve, did I say this was going to be short and fun? This wasn't what I wanted to talk about, but anyway, so there were legal proceedings and Steve was catching everyone up on that last night. And it looks like, it looks like Kyle might be in uh, legal trouble. But anyway, what I really wanted to talk about, I didn't plan on recapping that whole thing is it's just this kind of fun little thing they touched on, on the drunken peasants. So As I was saying, Steve is kind of atheist adjacent, but doesn't really consider himself an atheist. Maybe he considers himself an agnostic. I'm not sure. And he's kind of gotten into kind of online scraps with, uh, you know, kind of big atheist uh, content creators or personalities, uh, people like Aaron Ra, who uh, I think he used to be pretty tight with. Uh, So he's gotten in arguments about the uh, definition of atheism and things like that. And now I guess he's been in arguments with people over, uh, I think maybe namely Aaron, about whether or not rocks are atheists. And so that probably sounds totally insane or absurd, right? What do you mean are rocks atheists? They're not even alive, right? But It's funny, I've watched so much atheist content over the years that I automatically knew what this was exactly, you know what I mean? So I think uh, Steve was kind of coming at it that it is absurd, it's not even worth talking about. At least maybe I'm mischaracterizing him. Um, It was kind of a a quick little uh, segment where they were talking about this. But I got the feeling that he thought it was an absurd thing to even be, you know, arguing about or discussing. And yet people like Aaron or maybe other figures thought it actually had merit. Um, But I recognized it to be this kind of atheism 101 thing, this really basic thing having to do with implicit versus explicit atheism. And often, for example, people will say, Uh, dogs and babies are implicit atheists because, I mean, you might try to make some kind of philosophical argument, you know, perform some kind of cognitive ninjutsu or backflips to argue how uh, maybe living things, especially uh, human babies, since uh, aren't we so special, you know, maybe do have some kind of built-in awareness of a higher power. But I think logically, most of us would assume that um, a baby or a dog doesn't have any knowledge or any position on God, because uh, in in the case of a dog, they don't have our capacity for language and abstract thought. And a baby um, hasn't really 
it, it's not its mind isn't fully formed enough yet to, to even grasp um these philosophical concepts right it's it's still uh getting used to basic reality um so you would say since they're not actively aware that they're atheists yet they are uh you'd say they're implicit atheists and um someone a, an adult human being who proclaims themselves uh, to be an atheist, that's an example of explicit atheism. They're explicitly atheistic. And so by extension of that, and I think I've heard people use this example, um, you know, you could say an inanimate object is technically uh, implicitly atheistic, you know, because it, it lacks consciousness, it lacks awareness of a concept of God, you know what I mean? So, um, for the sake of argument and to try to, you know, to try just illustrate a point as silly as it is, you could say rocks are technically uh, implicit atheists. But I just thought it was a, a fun little kind of walk down memory lane. It reminded me to remind me of some of the old school atheist videos I've seen in the past. OK, I guess next time to move on to politics. Yay. And uh, I was trying to find a good transition or sound effect for, uh, you know, trying to segue into the politics section. And uh, I'm, I'm still trying to load all my old loops into uh, GarageBand because I'm still kind of getting used to this new, well, new to me, you know, this used computer I bought off of eBay. And I couldn't find a good loop anyway. I'm like, Morse code? I'm like... Does that make sense for politics? That's more like maybe like an old-timey news thing. I don't know. Anyway, so this first politics story is kind of a last-minute addition as well. It just happened to be something I uh, came across this morning. And so, once again, worlds have collided. Uh, you guys have heard me talk about... Uh, well, actually, recently... Uh, I shouldn't be... This is still pretty heavy, you know. I was talking about the passing of Michael Brooks... Uh, the host of the Michael Brooks show, and also, I guess, kind of like a co-host or contributor to uh, Sam Cedar's The Majority Report. And uh, I was talking about how I, it took me a while to kind of get warmed up to Michael Brooks. Um, he, early on, you know, he kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I, I talked about how The Majority Report with, with Sam Cedar is one of the first podcasts I think I ever subscribed to. You know, it was like the Young Turks, Skeptoid, and the Majority Report. And, um, and you know, I used to listen to the Majority Report all the time. Then I kind of fell out of the habit, but every once in a while I'd still kind of touch base. I'd watch some of Sam's videos on YouTube, and then I'd, you know, I'd see, uh, I'd see Michael Brooks there on the Majority Report YouTube channel. And uh, often as, as like a, someone who used to really, really be, uh, I don't want to use the word fan again, but someone who likes Sam Harris, I used to be really into, uh, you know, the Four Horsemen. I still greatly uh, respect those guys. I don't see perhaps as eye to eye with Sam Harris as I did once upon a time, but I still listen to him, still agree with him uh, often, but um yeah, I think one of the things that rubbed me the wrong way about Michael Brooks is that he would often go after Sam Harris and maybe other kind of prominent atheist types that I liked. 
And, uh, but like I said, I started to really, you know, warm up to him over the past year or so and had been watching more of his content leading up to the time where, you know, sadly, Elv the Blue, he passed away from, um, I think it might have been some kind of heart thing. Um, but anyway, uh, so, yeah, he used to go after, uh, various members of the so-called intellectual dark web. And and that included the Weinstein brothers. So you have Eric Weinstein, and then you have Brett Weinstein, who hosts, uh, appropriately enough, uh, Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse podcast. And I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this, but both the, uh, the Weinstein brothers have fascinating hair. Fascinating hair. Like, like majestically woolly hair. Maybe, like, if you rub their heads together, it might stick like Velcro. But anyway, um, I guess a producer or some member of the Majority Report, and it goes to show you just how, you know, I am kind of a lukewarm or off and on again Majority Report fan. Um, I enjoy the content here and there, but I don't watch or listen all the time. So I didn't even know the person who's at the center of this controversy existed. I didn't even recognize the name. But I guess Brett Weinstein took issue with um, something, uh, I think a producer or something from the Majority Report had said about him or tweeted at him. And uh, But once again, this was a last-minute addition to the show, so I didn't pull the uh, clip. But here's uh, my trusty iPad again. Okay, final thing. Um, with the death of Michael Brooks, I have held my fire with respect to the um, interaction with the producer of the Majority Report, Matt Letch. But there's something that needs to be said here. So many will remember that Matt Letch unleashed Pause a... Pause for one second. First off, I, I, I really... It, it grosses me out when these guys, and the, both the brothers have done this, even just like bringing up Michael's name. Like I would say, keep, keep his name out of your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> right. I agree. Because then the other thing is, and this is very important, right? Because he's about to make some very, um, he's about to create some very specific. Try to skip ahead because basically Sam and this producer have a back and forth about how Weinstein is pronouncing the producer's name wrong. The producer's last name is Lech, L-E-C-H. And uh, Weinstein is pronouncing it Lech. And I think they're kind of implying that they think Weinstein is mispronouncing it on purpose because obviously lech is a negative word. Uh, what is a lech? Maybe uh, someone who's kind of, uh, I don't know, perverted or twisted or lecherous, you know? Uh, that's probably the, etymo the uh, etymology of the word. Anyway, uh, let's see. Lech. Matt. Because it was Matt Binder. So it's, it, it is, they're tape because again presumably here we go hosts, i would imagine it's even got a higher standard so many will remember that matt letch unleashed a falsehood about me and therefore many remember he said he said falsehoods but i won't be pedantic about us that i was somehow consulting for the department of homeland security and what he was referring to was discussion with a an officer for the DHS, which I didn't, I made no secret of. I talked about it right here on the live stream. So he took that and he portrayed it 
as my um, consulting for the Department of Homeland Security. And then I said that he needed to apologize, he needed to retract, and he needed to be fired. And I was challenged in a way that I actually probably should have seen coming, but I did not expect, which is, oh, I get it. You are in favor of cancel culture when it's about you. Now, this strikes me as insane. Why does Matt Letch need to be fired? He does not need to be canceled. I never wanted him canceled. He needs to be fired for cause. That's what used to happen in the adult world. When somebody, if your pilot shows up drunk, they need to be fired for cause. If your surgeon refuses to scrub up before surgery, they need to be fired for cause. That's not cancellation. This person does not I'll pause it for one second. Let me see if I understand this. Matt, let me ask you, were you drunk? I was not, no. <laughs> okay, and did you uh, scrub up? I mean, were you clean? Were you in any way, was there bacteria all over you? Uh, no. Okay, all right. Well, all right. I'm starting to do my... Okay, so you can probably see where it's going. So, I get... So, I don't hate the Weinstein brothers. I sometimes even enjoy... Sometimes enjoy listening to them. Like, um... Like, uh, Eric Weinstein has said some kind of crazy shit. Uh, I don't fall as... Uh, as you listeners of the show probably are aware who are very uh, active on social media. Maybe you wish I was more active on social media. I'm barely on Twitter or whatever. Um, but I kind of catch some of the buzz. And I guess Eric Weinstein uh, tweeted something kind of that came off kind of crazy. Maybe, you know, if he had worded it different, differently, it wouldn't have seemed as outlandish or as inflammatory. But he basically compared to what he goes through on social media to what a black person has had to, you know, black people have had to go through, <laughs> you know, their black people in the American experience or whatever. Um, and, uh, and, but I don't even know why I brought that up, but, uh, yeah, I think because I was making the point, sometimes I actually like listening to the Weinstein brothers. I think they can be charming. I think that like, Eric Weinstein, he may have said, like, sometimes he tweets crazy shit like that, but I've seen his appearances on the Joe Rogan show, and I've often found him charming and like listening to him talk. And Brett Weinstein, I sometimes enjoy listening to him talk when he's talking about more like about science and biology and stuff. But at the same time, like I talk about, I say it half jokingly, but it's kind of frustrating. I, I guess I could probably solve it by just like, maybe if I unsubscribe to these podcasts, they wouldn't show up as much in my queue. But even before I subscribe to them, um, the Dark Horse podcast and the Rolling Stone podcast, Useful Idiots, were just like appearing in my suggested feed or my queue, like YouTube, the, the algorithm, the spooky algorithm really wanted me to watch these fucking pots. Excuse me. You know what I mean? Nope. I'm like, there's things that I actively seek out that I'm not seeing in my suggestions, but I'm seeing this other stuff. So I actually ended up giving these, uh, podcasts a shot and and i like them both you know I'll, I'll sometimes watch the useful idiots podcast i like matt taibbi and uh if uh if um what do you call it? brett weinstein's podcast comes up in my queue sometimes i'll just let it let it play while i'm you know in the background while i'm doing stuff but it seems like it's like 
day after day, night after night, Brett Weinstein's thing is about bitching about Portland and the civil unrest. And I get it. Like, I think he, what, he must live in that area or whatever, so it's more personal. But I also get the feeling that what he, and is it his wife or just his partner? Because different last names, but sometimes married people, you know, a married woman will keep her maiden name. I don't know. But anyway, uh, pretty sure that they're married uh, with kids, etc. But both of them, well, they were at, um, was it, is it Evergreen College? Is that what it is? Let me look it up. Yeah, Evergreen College. So I always forget the details about this, but he and, you know, I believe it's his wife, were teaching there. And I think, you know, they kind of described an environment where it was kind of like political correctness run amok to the point where these young activists were basically taking over the school and the higher-ups weren't doing anything about it, even when they felt like they were in physical danger. And so I almost feel like this is, I guess, understandably so, because that could be a very kind of jarring and impactful and lasting experience, you know what I mean? Um, I get why they might be like haunted by it. But it seems like that experience has kind of informed heavily the direction of their show. So it's always coming at things like, you know, political correctness run amok, these damn college kids running wild, you know, the, you know, complaining about the civil unrest and, you know, how everything's going to hell because of uh, political correctness and young activists or whatever the hell it is. You know what I mean? Um, and it seems like every time I tune into the show, that's what you get in a way. And so the feeling I get here is, um, so this young producer for the majority report phrased or worded things, you know, kind of couched things in a way that it made Brett Weinstein uncomfortable because it was suggesting that he was consulting with Homeland Security in some professional context. That's what consulting seems to imply. So I think he feels like not only did that paint him in a bad light, but maybe he's fearful that that will put him in the sights of anti-government extremists or activists. And so he thinks that this producer should lose his job because this was a dangerous and reckless thing he did, you know? And so Brett Weinstein admits that he did, uh, I forget, what did he say? He either had the discussion with this person from the Department of, of Homeland Security on the show, or he at least talked about the conversation he had with this person on the show. Uh, so he's, he's admitting that. So... For anyone who has any interest in Brett Weinstein, whether they be, you know, a fan or a detractor, uh, the fact that he had this conversation, as he admits, is pro probably, you know, somewhat common knowledge for people in those circles who care one way or the other about Brett Weinstein, you know. But uh, what he really objects to, once again, is the use of the word consulting, because that makes it seem like it's in it was in some kind of professional context um but i mean should a young producer get 
you know, have his job taken away because of, you know, this pivots around or boils down to one word. You know what I mean? And he was kind of shit-talking, it seems, at Brett Weinstein on Twitter, like most people do on Twitter, which is partly why I'm not on there as much as some people might like me to be. You know what I mean? And he compared... Because obviously, I mean, I don't know. Either Brett Weinstein is very, you know, affected by this because he's legitimately fearful of the repercussions that he might have to face because of the way this producer couched things. You know what I mean? Or, and the two aren't mutually exclusive, it could be an ego thing. He doesn't like the fact that this young producer took a swipe at him publicly and uh, it's under his, you know, it's gotten under his skin. It could be a combination of the two things. It doesn't have to be either or. Um, And so, you know, he's comparing this to a pilot drinking on the jaw. So he's comparing, and I think he, I don't know if it was already in that little clip I played, but if not, he'll go on to describe Sam Cedar as a journalist. And so, and he, and he kind of goes into journalistic ethics and journalistic integrity or whatever. And for, I don't even know if Sam Cedar refers to himself as a journalist. He's a, um, I think he has his roots in comedy and acting. And I think he used to be on uh, Air America, right, with the likes of Janine Garofalo, etc. Um, and uh, basically covers news stories, kind of like I do. You know, I'm not a journalist. I just cover stories that have already been broken or whatever, you know. Um, so he's comparing a young producer kind of talking shit on Twitter, a, a podcast producer, to a pilot drinking on the job or a surgeon not scrubbing up, which seems, that that seems kind of a bit of a stretch or a bit melodramatic or a bit extreme to me. If I was going to play the adult in the room, I might say, you know, uh, this producer, uh, Matt Leck, could say, you you know, could maybe, if not, you know, a a full-fledged apology uh, at least some kind of a, an apology for mischaracterizing things by using the use of that one uh, questionable word. And in turn, you know, I, I, you know what a lot of people dislike about Sam Cedar, and I, I mean people who are on, you know, the receiving end of his kind of his fire, uh, you know, members of the intellectual dark web, that kind of thing, is the way Sam operates is he uses humor and derision to kind of call out people that he sees as bad actors or who aren't, uh, you know, intellectually honest or, or something like that. You know what I mean? And uh, no one will ever take him up on his challenge. He's always saying to people like... Uh, Dave Rubin or the Weinstein brothers, let's debate or come on the, you know, come on my show, have me on your show. And I get that no one's obliged to go on anyone else's show. And if I put myself in the shoes of Dave Rubin or one of the Weinstein brothers, if someone's been insulting you or kind of taunting you publicly, the last thing you might want to do 
is go on their show. And, and I don't know who has the bigger platform because I think uh, the Majority Report has a really big audience. They've been around for a while. But also, of course, uh, for better or worse, Dave Rubin also has a gigantic you know, platform or following. And the Weinstein brothers have gained uh, a, great, a great amount of popularity uh, since they've been kind of inducted into the intellectual dark web. So some people might be thinking, you insulted me. Now you want me to go on to your show or have you on my show. And maybe, you know, you're the person who's getting the most out of this. We're kind of doing you a favor by giving you kind of clout or airtime by engaging you. You know what I mean? And and they feel like they don't want to reward the, uh, the kind of gnat that's been buzzing around their heads or whatever. And I get that. But at the same time, I'm like... Why not? You know, you talk to different people all the time. Just, you know, and get, if the person's really that wrong in their opinions of you, or, you know, just engage them and uh, prove them wrong. Uh, and who knows? You know, you might end up having more of a, uh, of a civil and interesting and fruitful interaction with the, with the person than you might predict. You know, what I mean, why, why not? I mean, if you're, I know why Dave Rubin doesn't want to debate Sam Cedar and I'm not just trying to parrot what other people are saying, but it's what I, I really think, I mean, in a battle of ideas and a battle of intellect, you know, Sam, uh, Dave Rubin's not going to fare too well. I think, I think Sam Cedar would just chew Dave Rubin up and spit him out. I think in a fair intellectual exchange, well, it wouldn't be fair. You know, it'd be lopsided in Sam Cedar's uh, favor. Um, and I'm not trying to be overly cruel to Dave Rubin or whatever, but we even saw how Dave Rubin started the cave the last time he was on Joe Rogan's show. Remember Dave Rubin tried to take this uh, really strong kind of libertarian stance, even talking about how we shouldn't have building codes. And, and I got where Joe Rogan was coming from because Joe Rogan's father or his stepfather, who he grew up with, you know, who was, who was raised by, was uh, an architect, was or is an architect. And I, of course, you know, come from a, a family that's, uh, you know, in the construction business too, specifically home remodeling, general contracting. So, you know, I routinely, I might not personally have to deal with them other than maybe laying them in the building or saying hello, being friendly. You know, my brother's the one who really has to talk to him or whatever. But I am up close and personal with building inspectors all the time. And they're a kind of vilified, it's kind of a vilified profession, building inspector. People consider it a pain in the ass. People don't want to deal with them. But the but at the end of the day, any honest and good builder will admit to you that we need building inspectors and we need building codes because we have to make sure that fires aren't going to burst out in people's walls and burn everyone alive or that a building isn't going to collapse, etc. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's one of those things, it's a pain in the ass, but at the end of the day, you admit there's a reason why it's there. You know what I mean? And, and Dave Rogan, Dave Rogan, I just did a little Dragon Ball Z fusion dance between... Um, Joe Rogan and Dave Rubin getting kind of tired. I've been at this for over an hour and I still have a couple more segments to go. But um, Joe Rogan just 
nonchalantly just ruined, you know, Dave Rubin. Uh, Dave Rubin looked like a dare caught in the headlights. He didn't know how to react to uh, Joe Rogan's pushback concerning things like uh, building codes, etc. Um, and he's the guy's. He's not an intellectual heavyweight. He's not, and I usually do not try to demean or question other people's intellects or the, their intelligence. You know, I try not to be cruel that way. But sometimes you just gotta be honest. Dave Rubin is not an intellectual heavyweight. The reason why he has his place or had his place, because he seems to be kind of getting edged out in the intellectual dark web, is that he capitalized, he was able to capitalize on his exit from TYT and he made a nice little um, niche uh, place for himself hosting conversations basically playing the Larry King role um, and not as good, if I'm going to continue being brutally honest, as Larry King. You know, Larry King, instead of... People will complain on the rare occasion where I have a guest on that I monopolize things, I inject my own opinion too much, which is probably true. Larry King knows that sometimes a good interviewer is someone who just puts simple, short, little questions out there and lures the guest into opening up and, and divulging things they might usually not. You know what I mean? And and Dave Rubin did an all right job at that. You know, he would have interesting and compelling guests on, and he did an all right job as an interviewer. Uh, and of course, if you're someone who followed him over from TYT, you probably quickly noticed that things seemed to be leaning more and more to the right. And it was turning into kind of um, a, a right-wing echo chamber. You know what I mean? I think he may have had Jimmy Dore or maybe one other left-leaning person on, you know. Um, but then, I, in, in fairness to him, I don't know what the truth is behind rumors that he's basically in the pocket of the uh, the Koch brothers and, and uh, receiving all sorts of right-wing money. He seems to be all chummy with Prager U, you know what I mean? So that was basically his role in the, in the intellectual dark web. He wasn't very intellectual, but he offered a place for intellectuals to speak. You know what I mean? Um, in the case of the Weinstein brothers, that would be a much more interesting clash of wits. Because uh, I do think Sam Cedar's a very intelligent individual. Uh, I don't think he's necessarily a brainiac. Uh, I, I don't think um, he's obviously not going to know as much about, say, evolutionary biology or certain, th you know, scientific fields like that, that some of these guys in the intellectual dark web um, are well versed in, you know what I mean? But when it comes down to politics and some of the social issues, PC versus the anti-PC culture stuff. I think Sam Cedar could more than hold his own. And he might be able to, you know, there might be a good push and pull there uh, worth watching. Um, yeah, I'd like, you know, why not? Just I'd, I'd love to see uh, Brett Weinstein or Eric Weinstein and Sam Cedar, uh, you know, engage each other. Uh, and even though, like I said, I think uh, Sam Cedar would trounce him, I'd also like to see, just for you know, the kind of train wreck 
aspect. You know, I'd like to see Dave Rubin and Sam Cedar finally uh, have it out too. But I'll end this particular story by reading a comment I left on this uh, Majority Report video. Like I said, I don't hate Brett Weinstein, but I, but I was feeling a little frisky, you know, <laughs> a, little, a little mischievous. So I left this message. A couple of evolutionary biologists using their NPR voices to complain about Portland night after night from their Ikea bunker. Uh, and I, I don't know if, uh, if uh, Brett Weinstein and, uh, you know, his wife or partner, if are they technically both evol evolutionary biologists? I don't know. But I just felt like being a little snarky. Okay, so this next story is something I wanted to talk about for a couple of days now. And it really seems to be peaking today. I'm recording this on Sunday. And hopefully I'll get this episode out before midnight. I was hoping to get this out much earlier. But um, it's this story about Trump basically seemingly trying to openly sabotage the United States Postal Service. And it just blows my mind. And it really, I mean, it infuriates me. Now, we've certainly, you know, I don't want to try to sugarcoat the past. We've certainly had problematic, um, even corrupt administrations in the past. Of course, earlier I mentioned Roger Stone's connection to uh, the Nixon administration. Of course, then there was Bush Cheney, and we're still trying to get, you know, extract ourselves from those two uh, protracted wars. But even taking into consideration things like Watergate, um, the kind of dishonest rushed to war with Iraq. Remember yellow cake and all that. Um, and uh, the Patriot Act, things like that. Uh, taking even all those things in, into consideration. I think this is the first time in my life where I've really felt like this country is operating under a kind of tin pot dictator or despot that you'd expect to be running some third world country or something like that. Um, open, I mean, just stuff like, uh, sending in federal troops to, to deal with, uh, rioters and activists, uh, you know, black bagging people, um, trying to sabotage the postal service in an attempt to make sure your opponent doesn't win, fairly win an upcoming election. Uh, this is scary stuff. And uh, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic or anything. This is the first time in my lifetime I've really felt like, holy shit, to people on the outside looking in, we must look like the way we look at like these third world dictatorships and uh, these totalitarian regimes with riots in the streets and stuff like that. You know what I mean? And so if you haven't been following the story, uh, basically in leading up to this, uh, you've probably heard Trump complain ad nauseum. He seems to have this obsession with mail-in ballots. And he seems to be, you know, he sees the writing on the wall that uh, Biden is leading him. You know what I mean? And, and so he seems to think, he has it in his head, that if mail-in ballots are allowed, it's going to be curtains for him. You know what I mean? There's no way he can win if mail-in ballots are allowed. And I'm not completely sure what his thinking is on this. Uh, part of it might be, you know, like say like 
elderly people who uh, can't easily get out to vote or maybe, you know, poorer people who don't have the means to readily, you know, travel or something like that. I don't know, to, to a voting to a voting place or maybe just that a lot of sane people who are afraid of who are afraid of gathering in one place during a global pandemic, you know, will prefer mail-in ballots. So maybe he has it in his head like his base is more likely to choose the traditional voting uh, route, you know, going to a physical location, and that uh, people who are mo more likely to vote for his opponent would prefer mail-in ballots, so he has to undermine uh, mail-in ballots, you know what I mean, or voting by mail-in ballot. Uh, it's very strange, and as far as I understand it from what I've heard, and I'm just speaking in generalities here, that largely there's not really any serious history of corruption with mail-in ballots, but Trump seems to try to be really playing it up like there is. You know what I mean? Because he's, he's kind of shaking in his boots about the idea of uh, mail-in ballots being allowed. Um, very strange. And another thing that just occurred to me is, you know, it's like he's kind of the king of corruption. Like, why, why is he so sure that if there is tampering with the mail-in ballots that it would be um, in his opponent's favor instead of in his favor. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Unless he, like, once again, he just sees the writing on the wall and he realizes that most people want his opponent to win. So he's just desperately trying to do whatever he can to kind of sabotage the vote. And so this is sketch as hell, man. But he basically uh, took a wealthy donor of his, a, a personal supporter, and put them in the role of postmaster general. It's totally insane. And then this appointee has been basically taking steps to slow down the effectiveness of the United States post office. Um, and there's been these really kind of creepy, disturbing stories. Uh, and actually, it's been all over the news. Images and video of mailboxes being removed from their locations, uh, being piled up behind uh, post office locations, being hauled away. And I actually just saw a story. Where the hell was it? I was just looking at it. Oh, okay, yeah. So from CNN, this is dated just eight hours ago. Amid criticism, USPS says it will stop removing collection boxes for 90 days. And then uh, another story, USPS will stop removing letter collection boxes in western states until after the election. Well, that's certainly good. But why just western states? <laughs> in the Washington Post, Postal Service will stop removing mailboxes. And uh, people are making a very good point that not only is this problematic and disturbing because of the implications it could have for the upcoming election. But we're in a pandemic and a lot of people, including elderly people, are having their medications delivered to them right now through the mail so they don't have to risk their health by going to a pharmacy. So when you take in consideration things like that too, it's uh, really disturbing.
But I'll read a bit from this Esquire article, and it's dated August 16th. Trump offers rambling defense of U.S. Postmaster General. In an evening press conference, Trump says DeJoy wants to make the post office great again. Yeah, the guy's name is Louis or Louis DeJoy. Speaking to a room full of reporters from his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey, President Trump praised embattled Postmaster General Louis or Louis DeJoy, saying he's a very talented man. Does Postmaster DeJoy have your backing for actions that he's taken in the past several weeks? Asked a reporter in the room. Yes, he's a fantastic man, Trump responded. He wants to make the post office great again. Are you shitting me? Seeking to confirm Trump's approval of them, the interviewer then listed a few of DeJoy's recent actions only to be interrupted by Trump, who confusingly said, I don't know what he's doing. I just know he's, he's a very smart man. Here is what DeJoy is doing. In the past few weeks, and under the guise of quote-unquote cost reduction efforts, the USPS has cut overtime for postal workers, removed mail sorting machines from postal facilities, and gotten rid of collection boxes from neighborhoods across the country. According to the Washington Post, workers say the new measures severely restrict their ability to deliver mail on time and could eventually lead to millions of votes not being counted in the general election in November. So just crazy. And I was so happy to see this. People were actually protesting outside this guy's house. Meanwhile, awareness and outrage over the Postmaster General's actions have spread from the internet to the streets. On Saturday, a protest erupted outside of DeJoy's home in Washington, D.C. And there's a sign someone's holding, Deliver de mail, depose DeJoy. <laughs> yeah, once again, this guy was a wealthy donor of Donald Trump's, who he put in this kind of sweetheart position. Uh, very conveniently, when he happens to have this obsession about, uh, m you know, mail and ballots. And so uh, this is another Trump story. You guys might remember uh, how, you know, a while back there was stories about Trump and I think Russian prostitutes and so-called golden showers. Um, well, this is from Forbes. Michael Cohen's, and th that's his former uh, lawyer. Uh, Michael Cohen says forthcoming Trump tell-all reveals golden showers at Vegas sex club, tax fraud, and more. And so this is just a teaser for his upcoming book. I mean, how honest uh, are his claims going to be? You know what I mean? Um, maybe, uh, I mean, I'm just trying to be responsible here, but uh, we did hear before that there were, uh, rumors of golden showers and now, uh, his former lawyer is claiming that, uh, yeah, well, he's going to tell you the story about the golden showers. I, I think we don't know who was on the receiving end, who was on the giving end of these, uh, euphemistically, uh, termed golden showers. But that's it. I just wanted to read the title from that article. You know what I mean? Uh, the title's funny enough. Um, I guess we can wait for the book to come out. So next I have a clip of uh, Mike Pence's kind of public take on uh, Biden tapping, uh, tapping might have been a poor <laughs> choice of words, Kamala uh, Harris for his running mate. 
And uh, I actually got this clip from the Young Turks and I kind of had to chop it up to remove their commentary. But I'll just play this little clip. No, look, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party have been overtaken by the radical left. So given their promises of higher taxes, open borders, socialized medicine and abortion on demand, it's, it's no surprise that he chose Senator Harris to be his running mate. Okay, so I might have been thinking of another clip. That was actually just one continuous little uh, soundbite there. Uh, I, I didn't have, I just edited out the beginning and the end where they were commenting. Um, but anyway, I don't know why it struck me morbidly funny when he said uh, abortion on demand. I was thinking like you have it done through your TV or something. But yeah, so they're already trying to paint uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Joe Biden as being part of the radical left. When, like I said, I, th I think I said last episode, I think Biden's like a center left, you know, old school uh, Democrat politician. Kamala Harris used to be uh, nicknamed Cop Mala because as a DA, she had these kind of draconian uh, law enforcement policies, including, um, what was it? Uh, arresting or at least threatening to arrest uh parents for the truancy of their children. And Biden used to have some really hardcore law enforcement uh, policies or bills he helped to uh, put in place or that he proposed as well. So it's like, like I said before, I, I mean, Biden's almost like the Democrat answer to Trump or there's a lot of parallels between them. And so they're both um, in a state of advanced age. And that's not me trying to be ageist, because like I always say, there's people who are of advanced age who are still incredibly sharp and coherent and, you know, clear-headed. But both um, Trump and Biden seem to be in, you know, states of cognitive decline. So it's not like Biden is some dream candidate, but I will certainly take... Um, Biden and Kamala Harris over uh, four more years of Trump. And uh, speaking of Harris, I actually think it was a really smart pick. I mean, um, policies and ethics, all that aside, just optics, just regarding the optics, I think it was a really smart move choosing uh, Kamala Harris as his running mate. Uh, because I think whatever you think of her, like when she first came on the scene, I really liked her. I found her very charismatic. It wasn't until I found out about her track record that I became kind of disillusioned. But still, she she is a very charismatic person. She's relatively young. She's obviously a person of color. And so I think, you know, Joe Biden did seem like, you know, he was like our last shot in a sense, like not a dream candidate, but we'll take him. And in a lot of ways, he did seem kind of like a broken down candidate in decline. But I think already, uh, you know, choosing Kamala Harris or announcing her as his running mate has already, it's having the desired effect that is already injected new life into that, into his campaign. And there's almost this electricity, you know, surrounding that ticket. Um, so I think this is just going to give Biden probably even more of a lead. This is going to give his campaign even more steam and momentum, you know. And you may have heard, but they're already starting uh, basically uh, birtherism 2.0 or whatever, or part two. 
Uh, you guys know how I feel about the birther movement, how I think, you know, it's xenophobic at best, uh, racist at uh, worst, you know what I mean? And I think it's a, a kind of... Uh, I, I think it's a, a kind of, you know, an ugly and irrational, or was, you know, I mean, in regard to Barack Obama. Because like I always say, you know... Uh, the records show he was born in Hawaii. I think it was that the Republican mayor governor came out and showed his birth certificate or whatever, and, th and then they moved the goalposts. Oh, we want his long-form birth certificate. You know what I mean? And as I uh, always say, let's say, just give the, for the sake of argument, let's say he was born somewhere else, Kenya or whatever. He, he was still born to an American citizen, and you can try and make some kind of argument whether the Constitution allows that or not. There's that phrase, uh, natural-born citizen. But um, I think constitutional scholars basically thought that Ted Cruz, who we know was born in Canada, would have had a clear path, so why wouldn't Obama? But now they're trying to pull the same crap with Kamala Harris uh, because her father, I believe, is Jamaican. Her mother is Indian. Um, I'm pretty, I think she was born in the States, as far as I know, but they're trying to pull the, the birther crap on her. And then this is kind of funny that um, when I was growing up, you know, I, I wasn't as big into professional wrestling as my older brothers, but um, I liked it a little. I thought some of the characters were colorful and interesting, you know what I mean? But I was never big into it. But of course, some of these wrestlers uh, became so big and, you know, they, they kind of entered the zeitgeist or the kind of pop culture consciousness or whatever, you know? And I always knew since childhood about Kamala, the Ugandan giant, who is basically uh, this giant black man who pretended to be like the savage from Uganda. So kind of a racist uh, caricature in retrospect, you know. But he died like a day or two before uh, Biden picked her or announced her as his running mate. Very uncanny. And his name wasn't actually Kamala, but uh, I believe his last name was Harris, which is another weird coincidence. And I, I'm kind of self-conscious here because I keep saying Kamala, but... Um, People are now saying the proper pronunciation is Kamala, and this is going to lead me into the next story. So this is another one of those stories where ideologically, you know, I side with the, the left-leaning guest, but uh, I think both people in this story deserve a douche medal. Um, so the guy's on Tucker Carlson show, and, I, you know, he's a Democrat or whatever he's, he's talking about, you know, he's... In, he's in support of uh, Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris. And he takes issue with the way Tucker Carlson is pronouncing her vo uh, her name. And so he corrects them. And there's something about the way he corrects them that kind of gave me the douche chills. And, and for a moment, you know, Tucker Carlson kind of smiles and laughs. And it's one of those moments where I almost think for a fleeting second that he's almost human and likable. But then he goes into, you know, full uh, right-wing propaganda mode and talking about how, oh, this, it's already starting. We can't criticize her, uh, you know, or whatever. Um, now, this is the clip that got all chopped up. And it's uh, just me cutting out, you know, when I think Anna Kasparian was commenting. So I'll play that now. What makes Kamala Harris a remarkable figure is that in the face of changing evidence, she never recanted her support. By smearing Trump supporters as bigots, he hoped to advance his career. And Kamala Harris, of all people, can respect that. 
Tucker, can I just say one quick thing? Because this is of something course. that will serve you and your fellow um, hosts on Fox. Her name is pronounced comma like the punctuation mark la, Kamala. Okay? okay. We, uh, seriously, I've heard every sort Un of bastardization. Okay. So what? That's how it is, uh, Kamala. Uh, okay. okay. Well, but that's, I think that's, it's out of respect uh, for somebody who's going to be on the national ticket. Pronouncing her name right is actually okay. not, it's kind of a So I'm minimum. disrespecting her by mispronouncing her name unintentionally. So it begins. You're not allowed to criticize Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris or whatever. Kamala. No, because no, no, it's Kamala, Kamala Harris. No, it's whatever. Okay, look, I That's unintentionally mispronounced her name, question. but I love the idea that she's immune from criticism. So let me restate my question, let me because on this show, nobody in it. power is immune from criticism. Our political leaders must be held to account. That's our job. You get a douche medal, and you get a douche medal. All right, so one more story in the, uh, the uh, my brain's about to crap out, the, the politics section. So I think I mentioned this on last week's episode, on last week's episode of The Week in Doubt. Uh, but <laughs> I don't know why I just, it sounded that way to me when I just said it. Um, but I talked about how we've been waiting for another COVID relief bill, another uh, stimulus package. And uh, the, uh, the two sides failed to reach an agreement before the last recess. And now they failed again. And it's recess again. And when I say recess, I imagine like a bunch of kids running uh, around, you know, wild, uh, which to some degree might be an apt uh, parallel or analogy. <laughs> but I remember I used to think to myself, I'm like, why are these, you know, politicians that we pay all this money to, uh, why do they get all these breaks and recesses when we have to bust our asses, you know? And, um, I heard it explained, well, that it's not really free time. They have all these obligations back home to take care of. And yeah, a lot of those obligations are them kissing the asses of wealthy donors and looking for uh, more funding, etc. cetera. Uh, so I just think it's disgraceful. And I think one of the things that threw a monkey wrench in the works was, and I'd heard before that there was included in the bill uh, a demand for 1.75 billion dollars to fund um a new headquarters for the FBI and that's in the covid relief bill one of the things that's being argued about and i think i talked about this as well in the last episode how i cannot stand how these bills are just kind of stuffed with pork and um, these really important issues end up getting held up because then there's bickering over this these extra measures that are stuffed in the bills. And this is Trump's idea that he, he insists on um, $1.75 billion being set aside in this uh, COVID relief bill for... Um, for a new FBI headquarters. And uh, that's just disgusting. And uh, I mean, do the, does the FBI need, are they in need of uh, new headquarters or whatever? If so, I mean, save it. You know what I mean? Let's pick up that fight 
later. Let's deal with that later. Get that off the table and let's just worry about getting people uh, the relief that they so desperately need. It's absolutely disgusting. And I never thought I'd be partially defending Mitch McConnell. Um, but uh, giving credit where credit is due, he is one of uh, a number of Republicans who are actually publicly outspoken about this being stuffed into a COVID relief bill. So I'll read a bit from this Axios article. So let's see. President Trump said Wednesday that Senate Republicans who oppose using the next coronavirus stimulus package to fund a new $1.75 billion headquarters for the FBI, quote unquote, should go back to school. Why it matters, it's yet another public spat between the White House and congressional Republicans over the substance of their stimulus proposal. Trump's insistence on the issue, despite little support from his colleagues in the Senate, could drive another wedge into already protracted negotiations. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has publicly opposed including the funding in the final bill. And this must be a quote from him. Obviously, we had to have an agreement with the administration in order to get started, and they'll have to answer the question of why they insisted on that provision, he told reporters Tuesday. And so this must be a quote from Trump. So the FBI building, they've been trying to build a new building for many years, many, many years. It's the best piece of property in Washington. I'm very good at real estate, so I said we'll build a new FBI building. Let's build a new FBI building, Trump told reporters at the White House. And I think my uh, <laughs> my Trump impersonation there was more like Bernie Sanders, who I actually like and uh, who I supported. Anyway, so it says, lower down, it says, between the lines, Trump has long been obsessed with the idea of revamping the FBI building in downtown D.C. across Pennsylvania Avenue from the Trump International Hotel, with a source telling Axios Jonathan Swan in 2018 that the president would rant about the terrible building. So this is basically another one of his weird obsessions, and he's willing to hold COVID negotiations hostage so he can try to force it in there. That's disgusting. Okay, so now for the uh, brief history and or science segment. So the story I chose this week is from Reuters and it's entitled Secret Life of Sharks Study Reveals Their Surprising Social Networks. Washington Reuters. Sharks have more complex social lives than previously known, as shown by a study finding that gray reef sharks in the Pacific Ocean cultivate surprising social networks with one another and develop bonds that can endure for years. The research focused on the social behavior of 41 reef sharks around the Palmyra Atoll, about a thousand miles southwest of Hawaii using acoustic transmitters to track them and camera tags to gain greater clarity into their, into their interactions. My apologies. Far from being solitary creatures, the sharks formed social communities that remained rather stable over time, with some of the same individuals remaining together during the four years of the study. The researchers documented a daily pattern with sharks spending mornings together in groups of sometimes close to 20 individuals in the same part of the reef, dispersing throughout the day and into the night and reconvening the next morning. 
and then I'll jump down a bit. The reef shark is medium size, reaching about six feet long. Its sociality bore similarities in terms of stability over time to certain birds and mammals, but differed in that it did not involve nesting, mating, making vocalizations, or friendly interactions. The researchers suspect the sharks hang out together because it may help ensure that the various individuals find prey. I found that interesting. So next on to pop culture, the final segment of this episode. And so this first story involves conservative darling Ben Shapiro reacting to Cardi B's song, uh, WAP, or WAP, which stands for, uh, I don't think, should I say it? Uh, I've been swearing a lot tonight, but uh, basically wet ass and then use your imagination. And by the way, I lifted this clip from uh, a stream or a video uh, Hassan Piker, Cenk Uger's uh, nephew, uh, did. And that will explain why you might hear Alex Jones's uh, voice because uh, a lot of um, content creators do this or streamers. They have little gifts or little video clips or audio clips that play when someone donates. So... That's why you'll be hearing uh, Alex Jones. Jesus you Christ. love the spirit of justice. Here. You love your father the devil. The lyrics, you ready? Whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. There's some whores in this house. Hold up. I said certified freak seven days a week. Wet ass P word. Make that pullout game weak. Yeah, you effing with some wet ass P word. P word is female genitalia. Bring a bucket and a mop for this wet ass P word. Give me everything you got for this wet ass P word. Beat it up, N word. Catch a charge. Extra large and extra hard. Put this P word right in your face. Swipe your nose like a credit card. Hop on top, I want a ride. I do a Kegel while it's inside. So, Orthodox Jewish, conservative Ben Shapiro reading those, uh, those lyrics. Ain't that something? And, uh, wow. And I remember Dusty also played a clip of this on his show. And he was saying, uh, what was it, Friday night, that uh, supposedly the algorithm uh, picked up, the spooky algorithm, picked up, not the song, but just Ben Shapiro reading the lyrics, and that triggered a, a copyright thing. And so um, Dusty claims that now the, uh, the music company that owns the rights to that song or distributes it or whatever is now monetizing his video. Uh, that sounds weird to me, but maybe, who knows, maybe the algorithm has become, you know, that advanced. And so this next pop culture story is, uh, man, this might seem stale because this is a really old ministry song, but I kind of stated that, you know, the pop culture segment could have to do with uh, things having to do with music and TV uh, that I like and catch my attention. So uh, I think I was on my way to or from work and I was lis listening to ministry and I noticed the uh, ministry song, Golden Dawn. I remember it's been a long time since I listened to it. And just the name, when I saw it come up on my iPhone, I'm like, Golden Dawn made me think of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and, you know, Aleister Crowley. And yes, Crowley is the correct pronunciation. And uh, then I noticed for the first time, because maybe when I used to listen to uh, Mystery way back in the day, it was before I knew as much as I do about uh, Aleister Crowley. 
And uh, I noticed there's actually audio of, uh, of Crowley in the, uh, in the song. Because they're, uh, I don't know if they're in the public domain now, but Crowley did record, record himself, you know, performing different incantations and whatnot. So I'll play a quick clip. So yeah, strange. So if you're new to the show, yeah, I'm technically an agnostic atheist. You can call me an atheist just for the sake of brevity or whatever. Uh, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in the supernatural, but I've always been very interested in, uh, you know, the supernatural, the occult, uh, mysticism, uh, stuff like that. And I did a whole, a very long uh, documentary episode on Aleister Crowley. So I, just, I thought that was interesting. And I'm sure that my channel will get, uh, I, I hope I don't get a strike, but I might get a copyright claim from including that. But I don't care. These new story episodes of the show usually get, you know, don't get that many views anyway. So I don't care if it gets demonetized. Okay. And so this is the very last topic. So, uh... I think I haven't played Dungeons and Dragons since I was probably like 19 or something like that. I played it off and on here and there, um, you know, throughout my youth. And uh, I was happened to be watching a stream or I don't may have been a pre-recorded video. I don't know. But I don't even know if the Bible Reloaded is still a thing. But remember that podcast, the Bible Reloaded? Well, Jake from the Bible Reloaded uh, actually uh, was talking about how uh, he's he's a very avid D&D player and he was talking about how I don't know who currently owns D&D is it Wizards of the Coast is it TSR but anyway um they're making uh like what seems to be this very kind of to me at least like overly politically correct change to the game and he was all for it he was actually kind of pushing back against people who were complaining about it and in fairness, I guess the change is kind of uh, optional. So if you want to keep playing the same old way, that's fine. But they're actually trying to do away uh, or change, uh, quote unquote, evil races. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm looking at an article from Global News. Dungeons and Dragons to change, yeah, quote unquote, evil races due to racial stereotypes. And so, yeah, it seems like that, yeah, they're trying to get rid of, if not races entirely, then quote unquote races that, you know, these, this idea that there's races that are predominantly or purely, you know, evil. So any, uh, anyone who uh, has any knowledge of D&D, uh, and D&D lifted its ideas from a lot of different sources, from uh Tolkien uh, from, um, did I pronounce that right? I, I, growing up, I always said Tolkien, but I think it's Tolkien. But um, they had, uh, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien had uh, this very distinct take on um, what he called orcs. And also like his take on elves, his take on, you know, hobbits. Hobbits would end up becoming halflings in Dungeons and Dragons lore. And whatnot. So D and D, Gary Gygax, etc., lifted um, a lot of ideas from Tolkien, from mythology in general, from other sources. Uh, don't laugh. I'm a big fan of British author Michael Moorcock. <laughs> Different spelling, and uh, his Elric of Melnibone series is one of my favorite book series of all time. And D and D even lifted that. I think they had to get rid of that because of um, complaints. Because I think. Uh, 
I, I think Michael Moorcock is very protective of his uh, content, his intellectual content. So I think they're also doing away with racial bonuses, at least to uh, some degree. And if you're familiar with the game at all, you know, based on the race and uh, profession, I think of your cat, maybe it's mostly race, but you get these kind of perks to your attributes. Uh, if you're a, uh, if an orc is a big, strong kind of creature. So if you pick an orc, you get like a bonus to strength or constitution. If you pick a elf, you get a bonus to dexterity. So I think they're going to try to water down or completely get rid of that. Once again, fairness, it's, it's probably just a suggestion. And, um, yeah, I, I, I honestly just think it's stupid. I'd like to think that people have enough sense to not carry over, you know, the focus on racial differences in a fantasy game over into how they view human beings in real life, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, it's funny, like, I said I haven't played D&D since I was, like, 19, but I have played certain D&D uh, video games, and I like, you know, uh, kind of role-playing video games in general, like Skyrim and, and that type of crap. And I always hate when the uh, when you get to choose a look of your character, but it's purely cosmetic. So you can have a character that looks like an orc with tusks and stuff coming out of its head, or that looks like an elf with pointy ears, but you don't get any special bonuses or you know and or weaknesses depending on the the species of creature that you're you've chosen to play as. You know what I mean? Um, I actually always liked that how uh you would get certain bonuses or certain penalties depending on what race or species your character was uh i th that's you know you know me i don't complain about political correctness that much i'm a really left-leaning guy but this particular thing i i think it's kind of stupid but anyway with that being said i guess i'll call this uh episode a wrap man am i tired uh, as always thanks for listening guys you know the drill you can like the facebook page follow the show on twitter even though i'm not on there much you can check out the youtube channel maybe you're doing that now if you want to support the show monetarily you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and support what i do here for for as little as 99 cents a month all right brothers and sisters until next time